Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 100. What we've learned from 100 episodes all about back pain. Let's go. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Okay, guys, episode 100. My name is Dave Elliott. I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, Rob Bevan. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Oh, I'm so good, mate. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, I think we should probably send out a little apology for the delay in this episode as well, actually. It's, uh, we wanted to do this one properly, but I know that you were slightly under the weather, should we say? That's it. Uh, even the mighty Dave uh, falls sometimes at the joy of having little kids in the germ factory that is nursery. But look, we're back to it now. Episode 100. I hope it's worth the wait. It should be. Although I did just realise we've called this um, what we've learned from 100th episode of back pain. What it should be is what we've learned from 99 episodes of back pain because this is episode 100. Oh, I mean... Uh... Do you, th- do you think the back pain calculators yeah. out there are going are gonna <laughs> to yeah. do us on that one? We've, yeah. we've shortchanged them by one. Shortchanged by probably not, probably not. <laughs> so look, we, we wanted to call this what we've learned because, hey, look, guys, we're, we're back pain practitioners. We're, we're musculoskeletal specialists. We're chiropractors ourselves, but we run teams of osteopaths, physios, um, uh, and regularly intermingle with GPs, surgeons, consultants, and specialists. This is not something which is alien to us. You know, it it is our day job. However, over the last 99 episodes, okay, you've got us 99, it's not 100. Um, Over the last 99 episodes, we've learned so much, both as practitioners and um, uh, people just talking to humans. You know, we've been able to improve ourselves, our understanding of other people's pain and our understanding of our own practice tenfold i mean it's it's been absolutely phenomenal would you say rob massively i think this podcast over the last two years has probably changed my practice more so than anything else that i've done in the last how long have we been practiced 11 12 years um Mm. i think more so and it's a lot of it's just been around kind of understanding different points of view um exposing ourselves to so many different points of view as you said you know makes you question your beliefs and challenging your kind of expectations and preconnotations and that's what's you know made me reflect a lot more and obviously researching topics uh, researching experts for we've kind of booked to have interview you know we've learned a lot more about around those topics you know what i thought i knew it's changed so i thought what we wanted to do today was kind of talk about some of our favorite moments or not not even favorite moments but bits that have stuck out to us that have changed our practice for the better i like to think for the better as well um and then talk about some favorite moments that we've had over 99 episodes and then some really important moments that have kind of really um you know that we feel that as people with back pain should really go back and listen to if they haven't already um and then some exciting news updates at the say for the very end i think Absolutely. Let's let's leave them like clickbait uh, right until the last moment, listen, shall we? Listen, Drag bait, you through yeah. the episode. Listen, bait. Uh, fantastic. Well, look, I, I'm going to get started if if I can, Rob. Yeah. I think one of the the biggest things that this podcast has improved for me is is my communication, both with patients and with other professionals as well. Um, every time we do a a show, I, I always pick up some little tidbit, some uh, individual way of explaining things, or um, <clears throat> another different perspective. And I think it was so. It was episode. Um, da, 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 let's have a look. Episode eighty nine with Jared Hall, uh, the Sticks and Stones episode. He talked about having more than just one um, uh, anecdote, more than just one comparative story so that you could talk to people on their levels. Because if I'm always talking to people about, you know, you know what happens when you've sprained your ankle, it swells. Well, the back is just the same. Well, actually, if they've not sprained an ankle before, that anecdote, that um, analogy is useless, isn't it? Hmm. So to have two, three, maybe even four or five well-rehearsed uh, anecdotes, stories, or comparative—I um, uh, 
what are they? Metaphors, euphemisms? Mm. Oh, analogies, I forgot. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> analogies, thank you. Uh, that's been amazing because now I'm not having to reach for a quick analogy off the cuff. I, I know that if they've not had a, a bad ankle, we talk about wrists, knees, we talk about things swelling, things being sprained, things being pulled. You've got to be able to communicate with the patient on their level um so for me i've got the for those of you out there who don't see us because we're in lovely podcast land i've got the ankles of a a 15 year old filipino um ballet dancer like my ankles don't match my body they're tiny and weak um so i sprain my ankles i'd say a good maybe once a year like really really bad hobbling around like an old man sprain now so for me, a sprained ankle is a fantastic analogy for talking about uh, a, a sprained joint or or strained joint in the back because I'm really familiar with the progression of pain, discomfort, dysfunction, moving into gradual loading and then easing as it goes on um, with my ankle. So I, I talk about that all the time. But if you've never sprained an ankle, if you're not a, an annual ankle sprainer like I am, well, that's bugger all used to you. You don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, having an arsenal of anecdotes of analogies to talk to people about has been one of the biggest changes for me. I mean, um, look, we talked about Jared Hall. He sort of laid it on the line there. But uh, yeah, every every episode, I've now got 99 analogies or 99 ways to talk to people. So yeah, that's been fantastic. Yeah, I think I, I would totally agree with that. And how... And I think a big thing that I've taken away from this podcast, yeah, is, is that communication. It's how we explain stuff. And all of our job, you know, is about communication, you know, and the way that everybody who sees patients, they spend 99% of their time talking to patients. That is their primary job is to explain things well after patients so that patient, mm. you know, you, the listener, understands your problem, understands what you have to do, understands pain. And as you said, that is so, so important. If you're just, you know, waffling from a textbook and talking about inflammatory markers and substance P, you know, that's going to go over 99.9% of people's heads. It, most of it will probably go over my head, um, you know, and I like to think that I know some of this stuff. But uh, it's it's about, you know, explaining stuff in, in simple terms and making sure this patient understands it. So having that arsenal of analogies is, is really important. An episode we, um, I, I can't even remember which episode this was, but we spoke about the um, the O'Sullivan test, which is at the end of a consultation, we say to a patient, so when you get home and your partner asks you what the problem is, how are you going to explain it to them? And then explain that to me. And then that gives you a really good indication of what that patient has understood from a consultation or what that patient's understood from your treatment or what you've explained to them or what they have to do when they get home or you know what are the key takeaways. And that is a really good thing that suddenly you'll go, I, I really haven't explained this very well. And I know that I've done this you know, countless times wrong and I've you know, really worked hard to improve this. Um, but it'll give you that little insight of just, hmm, actually, they didn't understand this. So, you know, something which I do a lot now is I do a recap at the end. So once I've seen someone for the first time, I'll say, so we're going to sum up and I kind of say, you know, these are the, the highlights from, from, you know, the hour I spent with you today, X, Y and Z and give them the, the, those highlights that they have to take away. You know, do you understand that? Do you have any questions? That type of thing. And then that you know, can kind of feed back into that O'Sullivan test of, you know, so what are you going to explain when you get home? And just kind of reiterate some of the things you've gone over. So that's something which I've been working on a lot since the uh, conceptualization of this podcast. Absolutely. I mean, this is real stuff. We've been secretly helping ourselves out with a bit of knowledge as well, guys. This is uh, not just for you. This has been a two-way street, which has mm. been brilliant. I mean... So what, one of the um, the analogies, uh, by the way, I apologize if I'm using analogies and metaphors wrong, please do write in and tell me off because um, I'm an <laughs> idiot. Um, <clears throat> one of the analogies that I use actually comes from episode five. So this was with Nick Metcalf, who is a sports chiropractor and chiropractor for a, a very famous top tier football club. Um, now, one of the things that Nick talks about is the the moderation of activity depending on what the player's been doing the nights, weeks, and games before. So they, I, th- I believe he used the term stress, you know, um, uh, what stress has their body been under? He, he said that 
essentially to boil it down and um, we should probably just get Nick back on to explain this properly but I'll try and do a terrible job of it <laughs> let's say you've got uh, one player who's uh, played a really tough match the night uh, the night before he's been against a really active and um, athletic opponent so he's been doing even more running I mean these guys get tracked each step each heartbeat these days you see them wearing those monitors on their chest um, and, they, and they track their mileage through the games as well so they've done a, a ton more mileage than they normally would do during a game um, they've been working really hard in the weights room. They walk in the door in the morning. They tell the um, they tell the coach they've had a, a bad night's sleep, a fight with the misses, and they had a few takeaways in the last couple of days. Now, at this point, we've got to remember that we're dealing with multi-billion-dollar um, uh, agencies here. You know, we're dealing with businesses, so it's their job to keep players from getting injured. So if this player comes in and they can recognize that they've done extra work or extra stress on their systems, they don't just ignore that and say, oh, well, on you go. You've got training today. You know, you, let's do your normal five mile run or normal 100K squat. They'll actually tailor their following day's worth of training, both in the gym, so they, they decrease the weight slightly to avoid early fatigue. They'll take them off the pitch a little bit early when they're doing you know football training later that day. They give them a bit more salmon in their meal uh, in the afternoon, and they try and make sure they get some better rest and sleep. So they are modulating to the nth degree, you know, every step, every movement of that player's day to stop them becoming overly fatigued, therefore injured. Now, these guys are doing it so they don't lose hundreds of millions of pounds um, and their chance of a championship goal. <laughs> uh, yeah, for those of you just starting, I don't do sports very well. Um but why don't we apply that to our everyday lives? Now, I use this with patients probably like five, six times a day. Thank you so much, Nick Metcalf. Because I say to people, naturally, we do this modulation quite well. You know, well, I was on a really long run yesterday, so I'm a bit tired today, so I'll do a bit less in the gym. But we don't always think about our lives in the same way that these premiership footballers do. If you always do a five-mile run on a Sunday, that's fine. However, if you did a 10-mile run on a Saturday... Maybe you're going to be a bit tired, so maybe take back that five-mile run. It doesn't just have to be one activity as well. If you do a, a ton of gardening on Saturday, your five-mile run might be comparatively harder on the Sunday. Often patients say, yeah, but I always do a five-mile run. That's nothing new. And we have to remind them that that five-mile run is perhaps 40 minutes of their week. You've got to think about the other six and a half days that have preceded that. So if you've had a really stressful week at work, you've had two fights with the boss, four fights with the missus, and 17 fights with your children, you've not been out walking, you've not been able to get to the gym, you've eaten poorly and you've slept terribly, bad nutrition, poor recovery, poor mental state, your five-mile run that you always do on a Sunday might fatigue you more than normally. And as soon as you start putting it in those terms, you think, well, well, of course. So it's not always the same five-mile run, although the output might be the same, the effort might be different depending on what has preceded that. Um, so treat yourself like a premiership footballer. Think about what you've done in the week and the days preceding and then adapt. And that sort of that different way of looking at it has has changed my practice, and hopefully has changed a hell of a lot of people that I've seen um, into realizing it's not even though you do that five mile mile run every week, for instance, um, you know it is changed. Uh, the perception is changed by what you've done before that, and mm. then that opens them up. And hey, look, treat yourself like a footballer. Um, that becomes a really easy thing to, to modulate and to change on your own. So thank you very much, Nick, for, for episode five. If you've not listened to that, by the way, go back and listen. It's a corker. Mm. It's early days back pain podcast. So lots of ums and ers on there, a few crackly pops from the mics. Um, but yeah, I mean that that's solid stuff. That was almost two years ago now. Yeah, it, it's as you said, it's, it's recognizing that cumulative load is the term I like to kind of consider. It's that you know, what other factors can 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 come come into into play here? Um, you know, no pun intended with relation to football. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's considering all that cumulative load and often kind of putting two and two together. Oh, actually, my shoulder's hurting. When I look back a few weeks ago, oh, I did do the CrossFit Open and I did spend loads of time working on my overhead shoulder press because um, trying to get that stronger. And then now my shoulder hurts since doing some pull-ups in the gym. And you're like, well, actually, what's how much work has that shoulder done in the last six weeks? And injury, we know injuries don't happen very, or injuries happen very rarely just for 
one time, one thing at one time. You know, it's that cumulative load, that cumulative effect where these little things add up. And then that sudden spike in load, that sudden change is often what is a trigger for pain or a trigger for, for an injury. Another analogy that, or another story that really sticks out for me is from Julia Gover's episode, um, episode 53, I think it was, um, which probably is one of my favorite episodes. She's a fantastic speaker. And she spoke to us all about kind of pain and why things hurt and, you know, how pain is actually more about a threat than actually damage and pain isn't related to tissue damage. So the more pain you have mm. doesn't mean that more damage is occurring. And I think that's one of my top five episodes that we've we've recorded. That's episode 53. And her analogy about talking about pain was using the example of the snake bite story from Lorimer Mosley. You might remember this one. Um, which is yes. quite, a, quite a famous story in, in the what we call the pain science world. And this pain science researcher, a very famous guy called Lorimer Mosley, was walking through the bush one day. I say the bush. I might be completely extrapolating the, the story. Some person walking through the bush. I'm assuming it wasn't Sainsbury's. Like, yeah, I, I exactly, think the bush yeah. is a fair assumption. Yeah. Somewhere he was tracking. I don't know, yeah. And I might be completely you know, bastardising the story, so apologies for that. Um, but yeah, he, he was out for a walk one day. And he kicked a stick, um, which apparently he's done many times before walking out through the bush or, you know, walk, uh, when he was out, out trekking. Didn't think everything of it. Two hours later, started sweating, feeling very ill, collapsed, fainted, and woke up a short time later in hospital, having been bitten by one of the most poisonous snakes in, in Australia. And he had no idea. Now, obviously, he had been bitten. He had been had puncture wounds through his skin. But because he'd had this similar feeling before, his brain didn't recognize that as a threat. So it didn't really cause much of an issue. Despite this puncture wound, despite this venom, you know, going through his bloodstream at the same time, you know, that should have caused an awful lot of pain. And, you know, obviously, if he'd seen that happen, that might be a different story. And then coincidentally, uh, whether a short time later, once he was fully recovered, I don't know how long, he was walking through the, you know, the outback again, kicked another, kicked another stick. And this time it did happen to be a stick and wasn't a snake. And he experienced all the feelings of being bitten by a venomous snake, you know, sweating, started feeling unwell, having experiencing a lot of pain. And it's the important, the, the takeaway from this being your brain relies or leans on these previous experiences to, to, to jump, to, to judge, you know, how painful something should be. And your brain plays such a big role in pain, if not all of the role in pain. It can ramp up pain, it can tone down pain, and it's based on previous experiences. The other the way she described it was, if you smell smoke, you know, your past experience is, okay, smoke equals fire, because you, in the past, have seen smoke, you know, smelt smoke, felt smoke, whatever you do, yeah. and you know that's pretty closely related to fire. So your brain goes, oh, I can smell smoke here there's probably a fire somewhere and you know i need to do something i need to get out and your brain's got a very similar uh, response it's it's pretty cool the brain but yeah that power to ramp up pain but also the takeaway being that it can also dampen down pain and that should be really good news for people that are experiencing pain because yes you know when we're talking about pain is in the brain and your brain controls pain if that's explained poorly it sounds like you know we're saying you're making up you're making up your pain and if you look on our, our back pain support group on Facebook, there's countless stories of people, you know, who have gone to see a various practitioner and they've tried to explain that the brain has a role in pain. And they've just come away thinking, oh, you know, they, they say I'm making it up or they're saying the pain is all in my head is the classic thing. And that's not at mm. all what people are trying to say. They've just explained it very poorly. You know, they're trying to tell you that your brain has an important role in pain. It can ramp up pain or you make it worse. And lots of factors can contribute to that, you know. Stress, depression, anxiety, poor sleep, poor nutrition. So many factors can ramp up the pain and then vice versa. As we know, in a good way, some things can make it feel a lot better as well. So that's a really important thing to, to take note of. For sure. And I think that, that little mantra, that, that pain doesn't equal damage. Um, again, that, that's, I think I've said pain doesn't equal damage for, um, <clears throat> that was me counting on my hands for those that are listening. <laughs> um, th I think those four words, are, again, since episode 53, I've used countless, countless times. Mm. It was always something I knew, but not as simple as that. Pain doesn't equal damage. Yeah. Um, that's something which I, I use personally, and hopefully I repeat it enough that my, my patients use it as a mm. bit of a mantra um, when needed as well. I think it's a great mm. little thing to, uh, to have on hand yeah. to remind yourself because pain at the end of the day is all consuming sometimes and 
and although it's there for a reason, it does sort of hit the oh shit button in our minds. Um, and it can be very hard to rationalize whilst you're in pain. But something as simple as that pain doesn't equal damage can be a great thing to mutter to oneself as you're um, limping away from <laughs> whatever whatever pain yeah. has occurred. I remember uh, a patient came into me once after me kind of relaying this whole, you know, pain doesn't equal damage or hurt doesn't equal mm. harm is the other thing which, which I might use. And talking about this with a patient... And she had been avoiding walking. She had an osteoarthritic knee and it was quite painful and she didn't want a joint replacement yet. So she was trying to just kind of put it off for as long as possible. And mm. uh, I think she had uh, some important events coming up so she couldn't, couldn't have the surgery right away. Um, and she'd been avoiding exercising because it hurt a lot. So she had kind of reduced her walking and she went, she walked the dog places where she didn't have to walk and she could just kind of throw a ball, you know, like a dog park and she didn't have to go for a long walk with it. And I kind of talked around, you know, it's, it's safe to exercise, it's safe to move and, and pain doesn't equal damage, all that stuff. And it actually turned out that she, I remember her coming back in and saying, I went for a long walk and I, I kept, you know, I think her words were something like, and I had you in my head saying that, you know, this isn't damaging my knee or something, you know, the pain <laughs> isn't damaging my knee. And she went for a longer walk and you know, she thought, actually, you know, once I started walking a lot, it actually improved the pain. Yes, it was still mm. painful. And yes, she still needed a joint replacement eventually. And she has had one since and it's significantly better. But, you know, talking about, well, I'm actually, you know, I can push, not push through the pain, but, you know, kind of managing this pain, shorter walking, you know, get to your point of pain, back off a bit, carry on walking a bit further. You know, pain doesn't mean you have to stop and do nothing. And then she realized that actually she felt a lot better once she, incre once she increased her walking and was, was aware that this pain doesn't mean she's damaging her knee. And I think, you know, that really hit home that it was it was making a difference, you know. Fantastic. The the other story I'd really like to talk about, which I think is an episode, again, another one of my top five episodes. And I might have a lot of episodes in my top five because there's too many to choose from. But definitely one which sticks out is uh, Tom Jessen, episode 15, which I think is one of the most important episodes for anyone with sciatica to listen to. And the episode is titled, mm. What is Sciatica? And Tom Jessen is a physiotherapy a physiotherapist sorry and a researcher and it, or kind of a sciatica expert um you know published a couple of books on sciatica and you know he's a, a generally a really a really lovely bloke to chat to as well i think he has the most uh, most calming voice of any of our guests that we've had so, so far <laughs> yes <laughs> he talked about the experiment they did in the i want to say 30s 40s or 50s about sciatica and the question being, why do some people still have sciatica once they've had a discectomy or once their disc has been removed? And, you know, why do they still get that kind of sciatica leg pain, pain down the leg once they're having this, you know, after the kind of the pressure has been removed? And it kind of comes yeah. back to the, that, you know, once a nerve has been irritated, it stays irritated and sore for quite a long time afterwards. You know, that nerve has to heal. Um, and it has to, you know, and it takes some time to heal. So, you know, in understanding that's important. A lot of people who have had a discectomy don't understand that. So, you know, they'll, as we know, they'll be posting our Facebook group, people saying, I had a discectomy, you know, I'm feeling pretty good, but I still have some sciatica symptoms or, you know, occasionally I get some kind of fizzy or some tinglingness, tinglingness, tingling down my leg or some <laughs> pins and needles or sometimes some pain down my leg. You know, and that can be a bit of a scary thought sometimes when, you know, as far as they're concerned, they've had a surgery to you know, fix their problem. And Tom mm. Jessen talked about how they kind of worked out that these nerves can stay irritated. And do you remember this story where, as he said, you wouldn't get ethical approval for this nowadays. But what these surgeons did in the I'm going to say I'm going to say 50s. Um, I'm rolling the dice there. Was they let's go for 50s? Let's go for 50s. So they looked at these people who people who had sciatica down one side, so unilateral one sided sciatica. They went in, they uh, removed the disc in those days or they, you know, shaved off the, the disc bulge that was, you know, impinging or irritating that nerve slightly. Um, and then they tied a loop of thread around the nerve on the right and a loop of thread around the nerve on the left. And then they pulled the, th the thread back through the skin so, and then sewed them back up again. So what it looked like, they had their scar in the middle and then they had two pieces of thread sticking out the left and right side of their skin. And then what they noticed once these patients have come around from surgery and within a couple of days, they basically gently pulled on the thread on the good side. So say the good side was the left side um, and saw what would happen. So remember that thread was tied around that nerve as it exits the spine. And, you know, it, it didn't really cause any discomfort. You know, as we know, nerves are pretty robust and pretty strong and they can take a lot of a lot of pressure. So it didn't really cause any issues when they lightly pulled on the thread of that nerve that had been irritated recently that was causing the sciatica. 
it reproduced all their symptoms immediately. And this kind of, you know, led them to the conclusion that, you know, nerves are sensitive and sore after, you know, for quite a while after the pressure has been removed. So I think that's a really important thing to notice. And I think that for anyone going through surgery or anyone that's had sciatica, that nerve stays irritated for a while. Now, that doesn't mean be careful and stop what you're doing. But what it means is just expect that sometimes you might have some pain and sometimes you might have some flare ups. That doesn't mean you massively re-herniated your disc. That doesn't mean that you've gone back to square one. You know, these flare-ups are common and normal and also to be expected. You know, recovery isn't linear. Is something I talk about a lot in my clinic. Expect to have good days and bad days. You know, that is normal with any injury. If you've got an ankle sprain, I know you've used that analogy before. You know, there are days when it's going to be sore than others. That is normal. And expecting that is, is, is important. So the I talk about Think about your recovery on a week-to-week-to-week basis rather than a day-to-day-to-day. If you're just looking at, you know, every single day, you might think, oh, I've had two bad days this week. You know, yesterday was bad, today's not very good. But if you think overall week-to-week or month-to-month, that's when you kind of see that, you know, overall linear improvement in your pain. I like that. Zoom out a bit to look at the the bigger picture. Yeah, for sure. Anything else that sticks out for you, Dave? Um... I'm trying to think of through our 99 and that there's so much good stuff. Um, no, I'm, I'm sticking with mine. I, mm. I like that. I mean, the, yeah, I love that experiment story. I, I tell it. And each time um, I probably um, bend the, the original story ever so slightly because mm. uh, it, it's such a, a fantastic yeah. one. Um, yeah. Pain does I, not equal damage. I think talking about communication as well is the... A lot of patients come to see us and we get a lot of email requests and things like that as well, asking about scans. Um, mm. And, you know, I think I need a scan for this. My pain is really bad. I think I need a scan. And, you know, the couple of episodes we've done with Adam Dobson, so I think he's, I think he might be our most featured guest between him and Jack March. I think they've both done three or four each. Are they, are they on a three each? Yeah. I think on a three each. So you have to remind me of his, of the number that uh, Adam Dobson was, was first on where we spoke about MRIs. Um, I'll pull it up now. You look it up. But his his episode was all talking about when do we actually need an MRI for our back pain? And a lot of patients, as we said, will come to see us saying, I've got pain, you know, I've got some some weird symptoms, whatever it might be. I think I need a scan, you know, just to see what's going on. And he kind of spoke about, you know, MRIs are such a brilliant invention. You know, they're so good. But what they aren't good at is diagnosing your pain. You know, and what that means mm. is, they can't see what structures are actually responsible for your pain, you know, and that might sound quite confusing to people that have had an MRI to diagnose their condition. However, what's actually happening, and this is what's important, is an MRI is compared with your medical history, your exam findings and numerous other tests to come up with the best likelihood of the pain. You know, an MRI by itself isn't very helpful, which is why, as we've said before in the show, we don't like, you know, people you know, self-referring for back for MRI scans because they get a report with lots of scary language. Adam spoke about how common a lot of these findings are. You know, when we talk about, you know, these horrible terms like disdegeneration and annular tears and dysdehydration and mm. wear and tear osteoarthritis, all these changes are very common and normal and are present in a very high percentage of the population who actually don't have any back pain. So when you look at these reports and they've got lots of scary words on it, and I don't mean to sound patronising saying scary words, but they are quite scary if you if you don't know what what you know what what they mean. And someone says you know degenerative spine, it sounds quite scary. Um, you know, so unless you have someone to explain it, it's uh you know it, it, it can be it can be a bit scary. And so the reason sure. that the MRIs can be an issue is because people have these things that can show up on MRIs, and this can then only add confusion. It could can trigger unnecessary surgeries and procedures. And it gives what we call an overly structural blame on the pain when we rarely know that pain is due to a single cause. And if we think about something like, you know, if we call it degenerative disc disease or, you know, normal age-related change, something we can highlight to patients is you had these changes six weeks ago, you know, nothing will have changed in six weeks, but you didn't have any pain then. So the cause of that, you know, being contributing to your pain, it might play a contributing factor but there are so many other things that can also trigger that to be painful right now. And as you spoke about before, that cumulative load, you know, you could be sleeping poorly. You could have just had a massive load, a massive spike in your training or massive spike in your movement. You know, you just got a dog or you just moved house or you're just, you know, cleaned out the attic, these sudden changes. And that's not that, 
you know, these changes have no bearing on pain, but it means that, you know, you know, they only have a pretty small, uh, you know, a pretty small bearing, really. Um, mm. And yeah, we don't want people to go down the line of having, you know, unnecessary surgeries, you know, the links with that and persistent pain and pain not going away are quite high. So we're not blaming MRIs. MRIs are pretty, you know, very incredible, incredible and pretty useful tools to use. But the skill in MRI is in the correct reporting and the explanation to patients. You know, what would you want to hear with your patients? You have, what would you, if you're a patient listening, what would you rather hear? You know, you have the spine of an 80 year old, stop doing things you enjoy doing, or you have a normal spine for your age. It's just a bit sore right now, you know, carry on with your normal activities, you know, and I think that's a, a, an important message to, to put out on our hundredth episode. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so that episode was was thirty one um, uh, back in the day. Um, yeah, thirty one. Uh, do I need a an MRI for my back pain, Alan Dobson? Uh, it was a fantastic one. But I mean, that was episode thirty one. We've probably touched on MRIs or the importance of uh, possibly more so than many other other things. Because something we, like Rob said, it's something we get asked about so often. Um, and especially on our, our support groups on Facebook, um, the, the sort of MRI, um, um, uh, you know, well, I've got this bigger bulge, how big's yours? Yeah. The sizing up of each other as MRIs is something we have to um, to explain quite often. So I think it's something we'll, we'll probably end up putting another 30 times as an additional into the next 100 episodes and, and so on after that. It's so important. Mm. Um, yeah, it'll come up time and time again. So what we use the sciatica one as a good one as kind of a must listen to for patients. Are there any episodes which stick out to you that are really important, you know, that are kind of, you know, unmissable episodes for anyone experiencing back pain, um, whether that's kind of the serious nature of it or anything that, you know, if you had to go back and say to a patient, you know, you need to listen to this. Anyone stick out? I mean... There's there's some classics. We we got early days, so things like the back pain myths. So so Sam Spinelli, um, that was that was pretty cool. You know, every time we try and dispel a, a myth's truth or a, a a myth, that can be really good. There's so much, um, so much poor language in our common vernacular that actually can make back pain more serious. Um, I think that's an important one to do. Things like discs don't slip as well. I forgot what number that is. Discs don't slip. Oh, that's a brilliant um, David Poulter. Uh, number twenty-nine. Uh, that, that's it, Poulter. Yeah. Um, it's it's simple things like that. It, it's learning a better vernacular, a better language to explain these things that actually mean you're long term. You're less likely to have long term pain. You're more likely to improve better and have a better relationship with your pain. Um, for me personally, look, I, I think. Um, uh, the episode with Donald Robertson, uh, mostly because I'm a bit of a fanboy and I love all of his stuff. But um, episode 33 with Donald Robertson, if you're someone with pain or who's struggling to um, deal with or uh, to change their relationship with the pain that they're having because they're trying to get better, I think episode 33 is a, a gateway drug to the world of stoicism and um CBT and and mentally accepting not lying down and giving in but mentally accepting that pain is going to be present um yeah I, I'd say number 33 from a um a mindset point of view could be phenomenal for so many people who are in long-term chronic pain it's not about giving in it's about understanding accepting and moving forward with pain yeah I think two other ones as well which I would highlight as you know really serious episodes which, which are important mm. are the two episodes we do or I say we've done more on red flags but the kind of the two ones we've done the first one being on quarter equina syndrome with rob tyre you might have to look up the episode number um and the one with uh, laura finnecane and trish greenhow around is your back pain serious and obviously the quarter equina syndrome was a really important one for anyone who might not be aware of quarter equina syndrome is a, a incredibly rare condition, but a very serious condition that, um, I said, most clinicians might see a, a handful in their kind of clinical careers. Um, and it's where the, what we call the cord equina, which is the, the bundle of nerves right at the bottom of the spinal cord, which control the bowel and the bladder, when they get impacted by 
you know some changes going on in the spine it might be a disc bulge it might be some a bit of a growth of bone and it can impact those nerves that control the bowel and the bladder and a sign of that is you get changed to bowel and bladder habits you might have some what we call saddle anesthesia which is kind of numbness around the genitals or, or in the inner thighs you might have some sexual dysfunction and you kind of listed off a lot of you know all the symptoms what to watch out for what to do if you get any symptoms which in you know most cases is you know go to a and e uh, right now for kind of an urgent MRI and the reason being that if these changes set in they potentially can be irreversible so it's really important that this is picked up very early now we must stress this is a, a very rare condition you know I think I think that's a one in a hundred thousand um, so very rare but still you know the importance of it can't be overstated and all clinicians listening will be very aware of this and very aware of all the things to look out for but I think what he did in that episode was he took me through his core requirement screening so he ran through the questions he would ask a patient as if i was a patient and that's a really good way for you a as a clinician to, if you're listening to improve your screening for core requirement but also as a patient to kind of listen to these questions and understand the differences because some people might think oh, actually, i actually have had some incontinence but you know and then he goes down the line of well has that changed recently you know did that come about through through childcare have you been under investigation for anything else recently because just because you have some incontinence doesn't mean you have quadriquina so kind of delving a little bit deeper into that is is you know is really important and then Laura and Sue spoke about you know how to recognize if your back pain is serious you know what we as practitioners call the red flags of back pain and yeah, and you know, the things which we might refer to as the systemic signs, so kind of fever, night sweats, generally feeling unwell. Uh, they spoke about, you know, um, what I speak about, you know, weight loss, malaise, lots of other things which, you know, when they coincide, coincide with back pain, a history of cancer. Um, as we know, sadly, you know, cancer can what we call metastasize to your spine. So very rarely, if you have a history of, of, of cancer, it can spread to your spine. Um, you know, so staying alert for what those changes look like is really important. And, you know, all MSK practitioners will be aware of these signs and it's their job to screen them and to ask you questions. So a lot of the questions which MSK practitioners might be asking you might sound a little bit irrelevant. And I think we even spoke about this before as well. You know, why is he asking me this stuff? You know, what's my yeah. bowel and bladder got to do with this? Why is he asking about my weight changes recently? And this is it. It's because the, our primary job is to make sure that you're, you are safe. And we don't need to send you anywhere else. That's our number one job when you go and see any healthcare practitioner is to make sure that you are where you need to be and you don't need to be somewhere else relatively sharpish. Um, if any of those symptoms ring a bell or sound familiar to anyone listening, uh, number 28 is um, uh, the Laura Finnegan episode, the red flag episode. So how to know if my back pain is serious. That's number 28. Listen through to that. It's fantastic. And then Rob Tyre, which was the CES, the Cora Equina Syndrome uh, podcast. That was number 40. Um, uh, almost halfway through there, number 40. Yeah, again, listening to that screen for practitioners is just as, as in and the ease at which rob goes through it um is just as important for practitioners mm. as it is for um uh, any patients any any people with back pain listening yeah, yeah number 40 do listen to it that's the important one i've sent those to a lot of students as well actually so for any students listening mm. um improving your knowledge of red flags and quadriquina syndrome is is vital really and you know we can't we can't kind of stress that enough really Absolutely. So what about, we spoke, you mentioned before myth busting. Um, and, you know, something that we've done quite a lot of. We like busting our myths. You know, we like to ruffle a few feathers. Are there any myths that we've busted <laughs> that really kind of stand out to you as vital, vital information? Um, stop buying shit on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, back supports don't, or, or no, I said back supports, you know, that, um, the, the 15 pound, uh, postural, um, shoulder belts and that kind of tat, um, just don't work. And in fact, they can actually work the opposite way. Sometimes they can make you rather dependent on them. Um, uh, yeah, the quick fix, the magic pill, the magic 7.99 postural support probably ain't going to work. Like with most things, unfortunately, it's a, a small but repeated effort over time which will make big difference. Um, 
so yeah, sorry guys. Um, that Amazon three ninety nine thing probably isn't going to be the thing to change your life and mm. back pain. However, um, looking after yourself will probably be the one thing that does make a difference. Yeah. So that kind of posture and its relation to back pain we know is pretty crappy really isn't it absolutely there's such poor evidence uh going back and forth that the posture itself is a direct causative factor to back pain um and why would you want to wear a, a weird sort of strap thing strapping you up all day anyway it's not gonna be very comfortable it'll probably give you back pain more than anything else yeah exactly so kind of understanding that yeah some postures may hurt and some postures may be more painful but changing your posture or trying to sit in that perfect posture and its correlation with improving back pain is pretty is pretty shite really and also you know sitting in a slouch posture or you know what people might call poor posture as a cause of back pain also doesn't really add up either as well now as Mm. we said that doesn't mean that some postures won't cause back pain and other postures won't make things feel better but is it the cause of your pain very very rarely very rarely. And look, while we're on that point, number 87, does sleep... Call, or No, what do we call it? Um, uh, the best position to sleep look, in to avoid back pain. That's it. And of course, the answer is whatever you bloody well fancy. Um, there's, there's quite a movement online at the moment of uh, back pain gurus. And I know here we are trying to be back pain gurus, Rob. Let's not mention that. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's a, a, a bit of a, a raft of people normally, let's face it, selling pillows or selling mattresses and they're saying this is the best way to sleep. Any other way of sleeping is incorrect. Um, but of course, the best way to sleep if you've got back pain is whatever doesn't give you back pain or whatever is most comfortable. There is no right or wrong way of sleeping. Absolute nonsense. But if they can flog a few pillows for a couple of years and get some YouTube clicks, they seem quite happy to peddle this nonsense. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if it's out and out ignorance or whether they're just holding on tight while they're getting all that pillow money. But I'm afraid, guys... It's bollocks. It, it's it's not good care. It's not good advice. Um, there is no specific way to sleep. It's whatever is most comfortable for you. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other myths that we've kind of spoken about from posture to core stability and, you know, does improving core, you know, strength improve your back pain? Probably not, you know, but does that mean core exercises don't work? No, core exercises are totally fine. Um, we know that gentle loading and moving the spine is really, really important. What else have you spoken about? The other myths that we that, that we like to we like to bust. You know, spines don't go out of place. That's the other one. You know, no one can realign oh, your spine unless they're under general anaesthesia, and it's usually a, a massive trauma that will cause it. Um, sacroiliac joints we spoke about a lot as well, and they're you know very rarely the cause of the pain. And just because you have pain over the sacroiliac joint does not mean that the SI joint is the cause of your pain. I think um, Mark Laslett said, you know, unless you're pregnant you have an inflammatory arthropathy um, or you're in a massive car crash on the way here, the pain is probably not coming from your sacroiliac joint. You know, I think were were his words. Hmm. (laughs) The other one I really, um, the episode that we spoke about a lot, and I think this was just a you and I episode where we talked about the concept of anti-fragility or making patients anti-fragile. And it came about because we have spoken a lot about resilience. You know, we need to make patients more resilient and kind of more robust. But we kind of ask the question is, is that actually what they need or do we need to make patients anti-fragile? And Nassim Taleb wrote an entire book about, you know, the opposite to being fragile isn't resilient. It's actually anti-fragile. If resilience refers to the ability to resist stressors or remain the same in response to a stress, being anti-fragile is the ability to actually improve in response to stress and actually get better in response to these troubles. And that's what we should be kind of enforcing in patients, you know. We're showing them that our bodies aren't fragile, you know, and making them more resilient, but they're actually anti-fragile. You know, our bones, muscles, discs, joints, cartilages all respond to the stresses that we place on them and get stronger as a result. You know, we're not fragile porcelain cups that break and crack with everyday simple tasks. We not only bounce back, we actually get stronger than before. And this message is really good for when we're talking about exercising. You know, I use press-ups as an, as an analogy quite a lot. You know, if you went to the gym tomorrow and did a load of press-ups, say you did 30 press-ups and you weren't used to doing press-ups, you might be a bit sore. But everybody knows, or I'd like to think that most people would be aware, that if you did press-ups every day, you'd get a bit bre- you'd get better at doing press-ups. It's because your muscles adapt and they get stronger. But what, what people aren't often aware of is that their cartilage and their bones and their joints will also get stronger because of this. So that kind of, 
you know, running is bad for your knees, squatting is bad for your knees and your hips and your back, all that stuff is a load of old bull, really, because we know that that load is what the joints want. You know, if you wanted the fastest way to for your joints to, you know, become a bit crappy is to pr- go to space, you know, where there's zero gravity or zero stress being placed in your joints or, you know, go to bed for the next 12 months. You know, that's going to be the fastest way to make your joints become a bit more fragile because they're not being used. You know, what is it? it's called Wolf's Law that, you know, the stress that goes through the joint or through the bones actually makes it lay down more bones. So uh, they become stronger as a, as a result of that. Um, I actually talked to a, a group of students about this talk, Rob, uh, and, and that kind of different, dif- difference uh, between anti-fragility and resilience. And they were kind of essentially saying, well, why does it matter? You know, that really isn't resilience enough because people know what resilience is. You have to then explain anti-fragility. Um, and my, my biggest takeaway was actually resilience is great, but resilience is all about, like you said, about not getting into a problematic situation. It is about creating this perfect environment. Whereas what we have to understand is that life can be a bit of a shit show sometimes. And sometimes we're going to get into a painful, uncomfortable or compromised position or time of life. Um, so resilience doesn't necessarily um, allow us to uh, sort of understand the need to adapt and get better afterwards. It sort of creates the idea of a constant state. So you're always batting and trying to get back to this level zero, this this magical baseline, whereas actually we should be improving every time. And as soon as you sort of put it like that, because it, it sounds a bit pernickety, right? Oh, well, resilience, anti-fragility, people don't really care the difference. But actually, when you put it like that, it's not just about holding fast and trying to remain. It's about trying to improve of on every step, always bounce back. I like that idea about the bone being put down, Rob. Um, I, I think that's a, a huge difference in mentality. So, uh, there's been so many things that we uh, we talk like this, and and we often... For those who don't know, me, me and Rob uh, both run clinics and we've got, we've got people that work for us. I'll often come in on the Monday and people will say, you know, well, come on, Dave, you know, is there really a difference? Is there really a, a change that's going to kind of come about through this? And apart from saying, of course, we're all knowing, do what we say, um, a, a big thing is just say, well, look, try it, you know, see if you can help your patients, see if you can update your language or your way of talking and being. Um, let's see if it makes people better. Um, yeah, I, I think small changes can often make huge, huge differences. Um, so something like the change from resilience to anti-fragility, I love that, Rob. Mm. Yeah, cumulative yeah. change. Listen to that episode. Yeah, well, I don't know what episode that was. You have to look it up. But the, um, uh, <laughs> Jamie, look it up. But the, yeah, these, I think, you know, to kind of sum up, you know, there is so much clinical yeah. gold in the last hundred episodes the last 99 episodes and also this one because we've, we've summaried it so we can say 100 episodes there is so Don't just many... listen to this one by the way yeah do go yeah. back and listen to the rest <laughs> there are so many important takeaways both as patients for clinicians to 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 take away whether that's to help understand your back pain whether it's to help understand what will benefit your back pain whether it's to understand what might make it worse whether it's to you know assess yourself with if you've got anything serious going on you know i can't stress enough how important a lot of these episodes are um, and mm. you know we've been super proud to to bring you 100 episodes. So basically, a massive thank you to everyone that's that's still listening to us waffle on. Um, you know, for however many hours, <laughs> how many hours that we've been talking about back pain for. Yeah, 100. Thank you, the listeners out there, both practitioners, people with back pain, uh, people who wonder with about back pain, loved ones in back pain, whatever it is, for whatever reason you're listening. Thank you very mm. much. Uh, you're the reason why we do this, and we're going to keep putting episodes out. Um, hopefully for another 100, 200, 500 episodes still to come. Exactly. Now, Rob, this brings us to the next part of our um, our listen debate this afternoon, which was we've got some updates, some, some performance tweaks that we're going to be doing to the Back Pain podcast because could we do another 500 episodes just about back pain? I mean, it's possible. Me and you do very well at it and we're um, uh, weirdly interested in this field. However, there is so much more that we could touch on, isn't there? Yeah, I think that we saw a hole in the market for this episode, for this podcast, because there are a lot of episodes aimed at aimed at clinicians, and you know they talk in clinician language, and as a patient, that can be a bit more confusing or quite a bit more to get your head around. And so we kind of saw the hole to you know talk about back pain and health conditions in patient-facing language, where we bring on experts 
to explain stuff as they would to a patient. And so that's kind of how this came about because it wasn't anything similar. Now, in that same vent, there is also not much out there for numerous other health conditions. So what we think we're going to change about the podcast slightly is whilst we're going to stick to our core message around back pain, we're going to start including some other episodes on numerous other conditions. Now, you might have seen recently we've had a few other episodes. We know we've done things on fibromyalgia. We've had a few headaches. We've done one on plantar fasciopathy. Um, But we're going to go a little bit more down that wormhole. So as I said, whilst we're going to stick to back pain and we're going to have regular back pain episodes as well, you might see a few more episodes all with patient-facing language around some common other medical conditions from different things like rheumatoid arthritis to shoulder pain to different types of knee conditions, another myriad of various other conditions. We get emails all the time and we get requests on our Facebook group with people saying, I've just been diagnosed with you know X, Y, and Z alongside my back pain. Does anyone know anything about this as well? So we thought we would delight the listenership with some more in-depth stuff about uh, some various other medical conditions. So, you know, more clinical gold for you to share with your friends, your family. And if you're a student or a clinician, you know, more clinical gold for you to learn from as well. Absolutely. Give the people what they want, Rob. Um, Because let's not forget, you can have back pain and other things going on at the same time. That is a possibility. Uh, One that we didn't really think about when we very first started this. (laughs) On that note, we'll... We're going to now start compiling our um, trajectory, if you like, over the next 100 episodes to include these extra conditions throughout the rest of the body. If there's anything specifically that you would like us to cover, do drop us a message. Keep messaging us on Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, It's one of the best ways to get a hold of us. We're compiling the votes as we speak and we'll start to to try and um, cover as many of the topics that you request as we can. Mm. Definitely, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to the evolution of the Back Pain Podcast. We might have to change the name Absolutely. slightly, but we haven't we haven't discussed that one yet. Oh yeah, uh, the Body Pain Podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the Body the, the Everywhere Hurts Podcast. I think that would uh, yeah sum me up quite nicely. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. As always, thank you everyone who's listened for the last 9900 episodes. Thank you everyone who's listened to today's episode. I hope it's been useful. Go back and listen to some of that clinical gold that we've spoken about on today's on today's show. As always, if you like what you hear, please give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. It means the world to us. If you'd like to hear anything specific, drop us an email, hello at the Backpin Podcast, and we will do our very best to include that in one of our upcoming shows. And if you are struggling in pain and looking for someone to help you, head on over to thebackpainpodcast.com, where you can simply pop in your postcode to our provider map and find someone local to you to help you with your back pain. So we've been the Backpin Podcast. We've been Rob and Dave. Thanks so much for 100 episodes. Thank you, guys. Over and out. Peace.